Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. In Miami, you're not really, you don't have to do much. You sit there, you look pretty, you do your cool job. But in Alaska, everyone's there because they're running away. Right? Everyone's going there because they're getting as far away as possible from the lower 48. The idea in our mind is it's going to have all of the pageantry and uh, costumes and backstories of the WWF, but it's just going to be a contest of who blinks first. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. This week on the podcast, you did what? We bring you two tales by people who make a very different move than anyone expects, including themselves. These stories were part of an outdoor show we recently held on the lovely grounds of the Ivy Bookshop in Baltimore. Special thanks to them and to Mend Acupuncture for sponsoring the show. And before we thank our sponsors, I just want to say I am Jessica Hankin, and that lovely voice you just heard was... Laura Wexler. <laughs> so Park School of Baltimore has been a longtime sponsor of the podcast. We greatly appreciate their awesomeness. They are an independent co-educational non-sectarian pre-K through grade 12 school located just minutes from Baltimore City. So this first story is shared by Nicole Espayat, who is a yoga teacher here in Baltimore who regularly kicks my ass. Uh, this story is from an earlier chapter, a very exciting and um, adventurous chapter in Nicole's life. So let's take a listen. Hi, friends. Um, So my story starts in Miami. So I am the daughter of two Dominican immigrants, um, and I was raised by a single mom, you know, Dominican father. Um, And so my mom's idea of giving me this American dream was raising me in Miami and having me kind of rub elbows with high society. I think she thought that that was the way that I was going to make it in the world. Um, So I grew up in Miami best friends over there and woo. and um so it's very much like this weather it's hot it's sultry if you watch like CSI Miami or Miami Vice I always tell people it's exactly like that um so my high school years we spent um skipping school going to the beach being on boats kind of living this really um out of control out of this world life that to us seemed normal but to other people seems kind of extravagant Um, And then with that being said, I wasn't a very good student, never went to school, always showed up with Starbucks in my hand. And the one class that I loved was my art history class. Um, It's the only class I, you know, studied for, took AP art history. And I figured um, after uh, slacking throughout high school, that would be my college major. So I went on to have a a pretty fun um, life in the arts in Miami. So I was working at Art Basel. I was working at, you know, Miami Art Museum and all these really amazing institutions where, you know, I was working really hard. I was rubbing elbows with these people. You know, we'd hang out with rap stars. We'd hang out with celebrities. We'd go um, and travel for fairs and things like that. And so when I graduated college, I thought I was going to get this job at this art gallery I was working at. It was like the snazziest art gallery. I had been like star employee forever. And I got passed over the job for, you know, um, a young really beautiful blonde girl. And so I think that was the one time, the first time in my life that I realized like, oh, 
everything's not just going to be handed to me. Um, I'm going to have to work a little bit different than a lot of people in this lifestyle that I've um, come to be up in. My mom, when I was younger, she put me in like what she called the white man sports. So I actually grew up playing golf uh, and tennis. I was a debutante. It was very um, extreme and really weird now that I look back at it. And so when I didn't get this job, I was like, okay, I'm having my quarter-life existential crisis. I don't know what to do. And my uncle, who I'm not close to at all, um, and if I'm dating myself here, so he gave me these box set DVDs of um, Northern Exposure. So I know if anyone's ever seen Northern Exposure, <laughs> it is a show about a doctor from Manhattan. He goes to Alaska, small town Alaska, um, and it's kind of like the ups and downs of his uh, time there. So I'm watching this show, and I'm like, I can go to Alaska. I can totally do that. I'm fine. This Miami girl can do anything. So I Googled on the computer machine. I said, all right, museums in Alaska. There's like two. And uh, I applied. I guess no one else did, and I got the job. So here I am on a plane to Alaska, sight unseen. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't have anyone there. All I knew was that it was really cold, really dark. Um, and the Miami girl in me was like, what do I wear? What do I wear in Alaska? So all I did was watch and read like Russian fashion blogs because I was like, they're cold, right? Like they know what's up. So, you know, I show up with like my extravagant clothes. You put on a fur coat. They say to wear stilettos because it has good traction in the snow and the ice. And um, so I show up to my first day at work and everyone's like, no. Um, so they're looking at me like I'm crazy. If you've seen like Legally Blonde when she goes to Harvard, it was very much that same kind of element. Uh, so cue this like makeover montage. So next thing you know, I'm wearing extra tufts. I got my Carhartts and like not in the fashionable way that people wear Carhartts now, um, kind of like the survival mode Carhartts. Um, you know, I've got fishing rod, I've got my rifle. And so I spent three years here in Alaska kind of discovering a new version of me. Um, a version of me that was capable, um, you know. In Miami, you're not really, you don't have to do much. You sit there, you look pretty, you do your cool job. But in Alaska, everyone's there because they're running away, right? Everyone's going there because they're getting as far away as possible from the lower 48, whatever it is. So I'm in Alaska. I have all these adventures. Um, I date lots and lots of men. <laughs> I drink lots and lots of whiskey. I go through lots of heartbreak. Um, and then, in a fun turn of events, one of my boyfriends actually lived in a small town called Talkeetna, which turns out to be the town that Northern Exposure was based off of. So it's got your moose, you've got, you know, dry cabins. And then one night, I'm going out to the bathroom. He has no running water, so we have to go to the outhouse. You know, I put on all the coats, all the fur, put on, you know, the waders, get the gun for the bear, and I go outside, and I'm this Miami girl, and it's cold. It's like negative 40 degrees outside at this point. And I'm looking up at Denali, which is Mount McKinley, the tallest mountain in the United States. And I think to myself, like, okay, I think I'm done here. <laughs> I think this is it. I think this is good. Um, so, you know, I go back. I spend my time. I end up going back to Miami, um, feeling a lot more capable than I ever was. Um, I can definitely survive a zombie apocalypse. I know some people think... I couldn't, but I actually could. Um, and so I come back to Miami. I go back to, you know, my old life. I go back to my old job. Um, and I realize I'm just, like, not the same person anymore. In a place that you go from pure authenticity, right? In Alaska, no one cares. 
you know, in my yoga studio, I did yoga with Sarah Palin. Um, and to give her the benefit of the doubt, you can actually kind of see Alaska. If you go to Russia from Alaska, if you go all the way to the Western Islands, people back in the day actually used to walk the Bering Strait. So, like, I will give her that. Um, so, yes, you know, rubbing elbows with Sarah Palin, back to Miami. Um, and I just realized this is, like, not the place for me. Um, I couldn't do it anymore, right? I couldn't fake it. I couldn't care what people think about me. And if you know me now, you really know I don't care about what anyone thinks. Um, and especially after this last year, right? Like, do what you want. Um, and so I decided, okay, I need somewhere else. An election happened in 2016. I was having another life crisis. And then I came to Baltimore, where I found the most authentic community and then for four years, I've been here, and I became a yoga teacher because I was like, you know what? I want to do what I want to do. Um, and so I went not thinking I was that capable, thinking I not was that strong. But I can literally do whatever I want now. If you go from Miami to Alaska, you can do anything. And when for people don't realize, like, they put Alaska next to Hawaii, like, on a map in a box, like, in the ocean. But you don't realize Alaska is actually the size of the United States, and it's above Canada. So that's how far so, you know, when I'm, like, on the plane crying when you see the little flight tracker, like, from Miami to Alaska, just me having a nervous breakdown on the plane. But, right, but now I can do anything. And so I have this great, amazing community here in Baltimore, and I just bought a house here, and I was like, this is where I want to be. These are the roots. Um, and then that's how I just know I'm capable, and I can do whatever I want. And so that's my story of my three emergence. <laughs> What I love is when she throws uh, Sarah Palin a bone by saying, yeah, you can kind of see Russia from Alaska. <laughs> see, we're um, trying. We're trying. People are trying to be nicer to each other, you know? Yeah. yeah that was, yes. was a very kind-hearted thing to do, especially in front of that audience. <laughs> so before we get on to our next story of You Did What, we want to thank Mend Acupuncture. So they are a podcast sponsor as well as the sponsor of the outdoor show where these stories were shared. They have been named the best place to get poked in the Baltimore area, and they have acupuncture sessions starting at $35. Okay, so our next storyteller is Thomas Dotstree, and Thomas is, um, well, he's a true Renaissance man. He hails from Norfolk, Virginia. He um, went to the Citadel and then he was a graduate of the Naval Academy. And then he was at the helm of a nuclear submarine. And then he retired from the military to take over an improv theater as one he does. He did what? <laughs> so here's his story of how he blended his two worlds. Give it a listen. An Ohio-class submarine is 186.6 yards long. Uh, it has its own nuclear reactor. It makes its own electricity. Uh, we make our own air down there. We make our own water. Uh, when you get on the ship and you go out to sea, so at the time of this story, I was stationed in a place called Kings Bay, Georgia. You go out east, you pass the continental shelf, and you submerge the ship. Now, to be more clear, you sink the ship on purpose, which is a fairly new concept in the history of mankind. Not, not as new as the Internet, but you know, more novel than, say, the printing press. Um, and so you shut these two hatches, you submerge the ship to a depth that I can't tell you, but I will assure you that it's not sea level. Uh, 
And once you're down there, you have the entirety of the ocean on the other side of the wall, or the bulkhead as we call it. You walk through the ship, there's high voltage energy that, or electricity that, you know, if you do something wrong, could kill you. Uh, high pressure, high temperature steam, high pressure hydraulic oil. Uh, and so the, the sailors on a submarine become very aware of the idea that their action or inaction or improper action uh, could potentially kill themselves, their shipmates, or uh, in certain cases, the entirety of the crew. And carrying around your own mortality and the mortality of those around you is exhausting. Now, we're sitting in a moment in history where everybody in this crowd understands that concept. You know, going through the uh, the pandemic, you know, we've lived with the reality of our actions or inaction uh, potentially having an impact of, on those around us. And we've carried around our own mortality in a way that we've probably not had to do uh, before. And so going back to my submarine, uh, you know, we go on patrols. Uh, I had done a patrol on this specific ship, uh, and there's a a halfway mark in any given patrol. So we call it halfway night, you know, truth in advertising. And that's the point at which the rest of the deployment is going to be downhill. And, you know, for older guys like myself, we had these memories of doing things like talent shows, things like that to bring the crew back together uh, because, you know, you get out there and you have your own job that you're focused on. You've got your own uh, schedule that you're on. And so it's really easy to just get tunnel vision and, and lose sight of, what it is you're you're out there doing um but on my first patrol uh you know this is 2014 and it was the digital age so people would just get to halfway night and play video games or watch movies in their rack which is the coffin style bed that uh we have and so i saw this on my first patrol didn't like it like i want to produce an event that would bring people together and so i talked to uh one of my junior officers a young guy from uh, south carolina and we're throwing some ideas back and forth, and we come up initially with the idea of doing a uh, arm wrestling competition, uh, inspired by the movie Over the Top. Anybody ever seen Over the Top? It, so if you haven't, it is a movie from the 80s starring Sylvester Stallone. He plays a character named Lincoln Hawk, who is a truck driver, arm wrestling in a competition for the affection of his son in an 18-wheeler. Story as old as time, right? And, and I would say uh, probably pound for pound the best movie ever created. Uh, if you want to argue about it, you should watch it and then look me up. I'm all about it. Um, but uh, we were going to do this. And so I go to talk to the captain about it. At this moment, I'll provide some context. At the time of this conversation, I was third in command of the submarine. So I was the engineer. So for you Star Trek fans, I was Scotty or Geordi LaForge. I own the reactor and all of the equipment on the ship. Captain looks at me and says, well... Uh, we could do that, but you're at a point in your career that if someone breaks their arm, you own it. I was like, well, that's not cool. So I went back to the drawing board. Go and uh, talk to this, this guy again, and what we come up with is a WWF-style staring competition. So it has the idea in our mind is it's going to have all of the pageantry and uh, costumes and backstories of the WWF, but it's just going to be a contest of who blinks first. And so, you know, we get out ahead of ourselves. We put up posters for people to sign up. People start signing up not even knowing what it is. They're just like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, 
we start uh, putting together a production. So we get high-powered flashlights to serve as spotlights. Uh, we find a karaoke machine in one of the crew's uh, you know, hangout areas that we use for audio. Uh, some of the guys on the crew went and got some spare parts, made a, a championship belt. Uh, we started advertising around the ship, so leaving posters. Some of our more creative ads, we uh, slid some uh, slides into like training PowerPoints. And so there would be a, a person standing up in front of a room full of people saying, yeah, so, uh, you know, with nuclear fission, you've got a uranium-235 atom, and it's uh, come upon by a neutron. The atom becomes unstable. Next slide. Uh, on Saturday night, there's going to be a WWF staring competition. Uh, not really sure what that means. Never heard those words before, but if you want to be there, go at 6 p.m. And then when it's unstable, it splits into two fission fragments uh, that can be anywhere on the fission yield curve, and there might be other neutrons that come out. And so that became our life for a couple of weeks, and this like really drummed up excitement uh, among the crew. And so we get to actual halfway night, and, and there were a few other things that we did as far as like interrupting meals as characters to get people hyped up. Um, but we get to actual halfway night, and you get to the crew's mess, which is the cafeteria area for the, the crew. Probably seats about 30, 35 people normally. Uh, we've got 60 people packed into this, this room. And uh, people have, like, orchestrated their schedules so that they could be there. Um, and, you know, I'm the only person that is a part of this production that has any improv experience. Uh, but you know, in this, this moment, it didn't matter. Like it was the, the excitement of the moment had really gotten to a place where we were all committed to this idea. And so we, we do this show and there was the show that happened on stage, which is exactly what you think it is. A lot of guys in weird costumes having staring contests and, uh, you know, made up backstories, yada, yada, yada. People cheated. Sriracha was thrown in eyes. You know, it happens. Um, no, nobody's eyes were actually hurt. It was, it was all staged. Unlike real wrestling, it's, it was fake. Um, but what was equally interesting to me was the show that I was watching from the stage. And I looked into the eyes of the crew, and this was the first time that I had ever... And, and like at this point in my life, I had been doing improv uh, for about 10 years. I had you know, maybe a 1,000 shows under my belt. But I had never performed for a group of people whose lives were actively in danger at the time that we were performing for them. Um, and I had never performed with people whose lives were actively in danger at the time that we were performing. And there was this, this beautiful transformation that happened where you had all of these sailors who, for the rest of the patrol... And every moment after this patrol were very aware of their own mortality and the mortality of those around them. But for the 90 minutes that we did this show, none of that mattered. For that 90 minutes, all that mattered was what was happening on that stage. And being honest about it, the, the way I think about it is that is the closest that I will ever come to being immortal. Because when you're, you're completely invested in a, a shared experience... Uh, and you have that human connection and, you know, that, that recycling of creative energy because we didn't go in there with a script. We didn't know what was going to happen, and we were reacting to what was happening from the crowd and kind of building this thing together. Uh, seeing the look in those people's eyes and seeing them be able to be present in that moment really changed my relationship with performance. And so... I saw them change in that for that 90 minutes, they were able to, to 
let it all go. And they also had different expectations of themselves going forward whenever it came time to like spend time with each other outside of their normal duties. And I was changed because I I always took performing seriously, but there's, there's a, I don't know what I consider to be a sacred trust that you come, uh, you take time out of your lives to come see a thing. And if it's treated with the proper gravity, then maybe we can all find that same type of escape together. And so, you know, as I look uh, across the crowd uh you know we've we've all been at a brink that we didn't anticipate we've all been changed uh and so it's my hope that we all reemerge together myself and and all of us uh you know looking forward and and jealously guarding those human connections knowing that when we do stuff like this uh it is an opportunity for us to be present in the moment and what I believe to be, be immortal for that period of time where the only thing that matters is this thing that we are experiencing together. Thank you. As someone whose husband was formerly all into professional wrestling, I particularly loved all of the theater and pageantry that they were able to muster up on that submarine. Yeah. I mean, you know, when Thomas is around, uh, fun fun happens. That's the that's basically all he needed to say is, I'm here, so let's have fun. And that's exactly what we did when he shared that story. And we hope that you had fun listening to this podcast. We are a podcast that is sponsored, thankfully, by the wonderful Wine Source, which is a delicious wine, beer, and snack supplier located in the heart of Hamden on Elm Avenue. And we are also grateful to be supported by the Golden West, which is an omni restaurant with a vegan forward menu, also located right in the heart of Hamden, since 1997, actually. Please visit soupstorytelling.com to learn about our upcoming events. We are gearing up for live shows, in-person shows this coming fall. Or you can check out stories from our archive. You can find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And we are on Facebook and Instagram at Soup Storytelling Series. Thank you to Maureen Harvey, as always, for producing. And to you all, as always, for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the Soup. See you later.